Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, the time has come. The fourth annual State of Labor in Baseball with Michael Bauman. This has really become a bellwether episode for us over the years. The first one we did, as we were just talking about before we started recording, uh, I don't even think we called that one State of Labor in Baseball. We probably just made a, a pun title for it. But then yeah, I'm pretty we, sure it was The Labor of Love, which <laughs> tracks. Sounds like what I would try to <laughs> name this episode if it was not the next in a series. Uh Bauman has been so generous with his time with us over the years and coming on and shooting the shit about labor, talking about serious issues, doing consumer rants. And this is always one of, uh, one, one of I think, our statement episodes for the year. Uh, a nice way to set the tone for, to recap what we have been talking about for the last year, but also kind of foreshadow and set the tone for what we intend to talk about or intend to focus on for the next year. Um, so if you've never listened to one of the states of labor and baseball, I know I'm starting this episode out so seriously. I'm not cracking any jokes. <laughs> I know. But no, I, there's I, no there's no question you want to ask me. No, like, no, I don't have any questions for you other than um, can you believe that we were at karaoke last night and someone was doing skinny love in front of the entire bar? <laughs> <laughs> that was a cultural reset. Honestly, Can you think of a worse song to do in front of an entire bar at a karaoke bar? Not because it's not a good song or not because it's not maybe fun for you to sing along to but for the rest of the bar it just sets an incredibly weird vibe it yeah because you're like all of a sudden you're at a concert now now i'm just like <laughs> i'm just like I'm, i just want to sip my drink and like and like listen my other question was going to be can you believe that we were censored by that karaoke bar when they broke the microphone before giving it to us to sing vindicated in front of the entire bar that was so rude but you know what i'll say we didn't need the mic we didn't need the mic no because all the dudes all the dashboard <laughs> confessionalists we're in there, and we opened up the pit. Um, anyway, back to the point of the podcast. Uh, States of Labor and Baseball, this is the fourth one. The other three, I think, are fun time capsules. If you are a new listener and you haven't listened to any of them, they're definitely of a moment with some of the things that we were focusing on. But I think a nice, if you have extra time or you're looking for something to go back and check out, I think they're worth it contextually to, to hear what we've talked about over the years. Um, it's usually our first or second episode of the new year. So if you scroll back in your feeds a year back or two years back or three years back, you'll see those episodes. Um, this one, we really, we really got into it. It was a little more adversarial than I our know. States of Labor yeah. and Baseball. This is just because I haven't seen Mike in a while. I don't work with him anymore, so I can't poke and prod him. So this is my one opportunity to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but he kept being like, you're such a fear monger. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just, everybody seems so optimistic. And I feel like we shouldn't be optimistic. Well, you got him there by the end. By the end, I think we were all um, filled with the pessimism that this sport uh, rightly bestows on us. What's the state of Alex? How you doing? It's been a while since we've recorded anything in person together. It is a little weird. I have Stevie next to me yeah. right now. It's all been right in the world again. It's been strange the last few weeks. But I'm good, you know. I apologies if my if my voice is, you know, a little is struggling. Yeah. A little bit. The pipes were the pipes were moving last night. We were at a musical bar, like a like a show tunes bar. Yeah. 
I didn't know any of them, but, but we were everyone at, else was having fun. We were at a karaoke bar that Matt Harvey's picture and signature was on the wall for, which is wild. I just I wasn't prepared for that really. <laughs> um, West Village legend Matt Harvey. You know <laughs> what else is there to say? <laughs> All up you, and down the West Side. His pictures on one Oaks wall. Like, do they have a celeb wall? No, because I feel like that so many like the clientele is mostly celebrities there. Right. So it's not That'd like be weird. Cool. To have a celeb- they should have like a normies wall. Right. <laughs> like you and I can be on there. <laughs> exactly. Um, thank you to our new patron this week, Pete. I always love when there's one new patron in a week because then I get to just shout out that person individually. It yeah. makes it makes it more special. For yeah. Pete. Was- thank you to Pete. He picked the one week where no one else signed up. That's just good timing. That is good timing on your part. So Pete, this episode's for you. <laughs> The whole episode is dedicated to Pete. Thank you, Pete. Um, other Patreon housekeeping before we get to our conversation with Mike. Uh, the holiday cards, as promised, for the top tier Alex Rodriguez VIP club. Uh, they're verging on maybe not being holiday cards anymore, but they are cards. And they do exist. <laughs> they have arrived at Alex's apartment. And they will be signed, sealed, and delivered. In due time, you know? <laughs> right. I, we're not going to put a date on it, right. necessarily. The holiday could be May Day. And right, you know what? Exactly. That would be more honest to who we are. The holiday could be pitchers and catchers reporting. That might even be optimistic. The holiday could be opening day. Yeah. Well, you don't know, but you're going to get the card. Yeah, we're, we're non-denominational here, right? We, we don't ascribe to one holiday or the other. Right. My denomination is seeing Max Scherzer back throwing bullpens that's right that's right brother in shorts <laughs> all is right in the world <laughs> uh okay let's do it state of labor and baseball part four 2023 we're gonna do it but before we do i am bobby wagner i am alex Baisley, and you are listening to tipping pitches State of Labor in Baseball, Part 4. We are joined by the one and only Michael Bauman, whom I have not talked to on or offline in quite a while, so perhaps we have a lot to catch up <laughs> unrelated to labor and baseball. But Michael, hello. Welcome, welcome back to the show. It's always fun to, to do this. I you know, I feel a little pigeonholed only being the, the labor <laughs> and baseball guy. I would have thought that, that I warranted more frequent appearances, but apparently not. Nevertheless, I'm happy to to fulfill this this uh, this role that, that you guys have carved out for me. Listen, you you have one of those cards that you can play to come on, like a get out of jail free card, a get on tipping pitches card, okay. whenever you'd like to. So if there's something else that you want to talk to talk about, whether it be Wade Miley or Drew Smiley or Jordan Lyles or whatever else, whatever other minutia you're writing about day to day on fangraphs.com new role since the last time we, we've been on the podcast. we were just talking about this the amount of baseball stuff i have to develop an opinion about is just <laughs> it's it's a quantum leap from even at the the early days of the ringer where i was writing more frequently about baseball it's i wrote about eric hosmer's like park effects that's it's gonna <laughs> be going up tomorrow like man i know so much my brain is so big right now <laughs> Well, so if anything, this is this is a break for you. This is your bread and butter right here. It's you can true. Tur- you can yeah. turn the brain off. We'll talk labor easy, easy money. 
Yeah, definitely. That's that's what I want people to think about my brain and or my labor analysis is this is a guy who's turned his brain on. <laughs> exactly. I think people have been thinking about that. Thinking, <laughs> thinking yeah, that I about you right for years. That. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I got ahead of myself. Couldn't even get the joke out. Um, Michael, you're here to talk about the state of labor in baseball and maybe do a, a your third straight consumer rant at the end of the podcast. But we'll save that. We'll save that for when it gets here. Um, I, I guess we should just start from a macro perspective. A lot has happened in the last year. We got a CBA mm-hmm. since the last time we talked. Uh, the minor leagues have unionized since the last time we talked, which I never thought I would say out loud. Um, so I guess from your general health, grade grade the state of labor in baseball, A through F, from a general overall health perspective. And then we can dive into some of the details of it a little later. Okay, so a letter grade. I was going to say, so when they do the the State of the Union, like the president has to say the State of the Union is either good or bad. Let's do that. That's great. That's better than letter grade. We were going like health health department. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I'm not prepared to talk about my health on this podcast. But (laughs) uh, for the first time since since I've been coming on and doing these appearances, uh, the state of labor in baseball is good. Wow. I'd say like Big at least words. a solid B to B plus. Yeah. I, I'm optimistic about the way things are going right now. So, I mean, wh- when we, when we look back on everything that has happened in the last year, right. And Bobby just, just rattled off a few of them and it, and it all comes amid sort of this, I hesitate to say historic amount of spending um, because inflation and all that, that sort of stuff. But we're seeing a lot of money being handed out to big free agents this offseason. And I, I wonder, kind of looking at all these sort of data points, do you see them as indicative of a changing of the tides when it comes to labor and baseball? Or is it more kind of a, a respite from, from how things have have been right is it more just kind of noise that that things you know might go back to to normal in a couple of years well i think that so there are a couple trends that uh that are notable in terms of free agent spending um one is that teams are actually buying good players and attempting to win which is something that i took for granted my entire life until about 2016 2017 or so uh that Teams are actually going after top of top of the market free agents and giving them, you know, huge guaranteed we're, guarantees. We're seeing some movement at the top of the market in terms of average annual value. Um, one thing that that we're not seeing is, I guess, with the exception of Aaron Judge and and some of these short, very short term contracts for older pitchers, is a, a huge rise is a, a separation between. Uh, what the absolute top of market guys get and what the second tier guys get, which is not the end of the world for me. The people that I'm least concerned about in terms of labor or consumers or stakeholders in baseball are like Raphael Devers or Trey Turner. Like those guys are going to get what's coming to them. Uh, that sounded ominous. Not in a bad way. <laughs> they're going to get. They're going to get what they deserve. Uh, you know. It, and they're going to become oppressor class rich, no matter what, you know, whether it's they make $300 million or $500 million. Um, you can't be it, doing blanket threats to Trey Turner like that now that he lives so close to you. I don't know where he's going to live. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's going to spend at least 81 days very close to you next year. So he's a little man. I, I'm not afraid <laughs> of him. If Phillies inside Carlos Rodon, that would be a different story. But Trey Turner's a teeny little man. I, I don't fear him. 
Um, so there, but there's a flattening, which means that that it's worth it to go out and spend big money on, like it's worth it to to spend twenty seven million dollars a year on Trey Turner. Or Car- well, we'll see about Carlos Correa, but we're like Xander Bogarts versus spend like twenty five million dollars a year on Dansby Swanson. Like the we're and I think that's doing a lot to the rhetoric around these huge contracts, these huge star level contracts, because people were saying about Bryce Harper, oh, can you believe that he's going to be under contract until, you know, for 13 years. I'm like, yeah, well, look at the, you know, look at the AAV. Like this is not that much to spend on a, a player that good now. And it will be even less so if we're all still alive in 2030. Uh, so I, you know, w- but what we're seeing is the, the upper middle class of, of free agents. So, you know, the Taiwan Walker, Jameson Tyon, guys like that are being made whole. And that was a, a real concern in the real doldrums of the capital strike in the late 2010s was just this entire class of players who were, you know, had their service time manipulated. They were getting underpaid at the minor league level. You know, they're like, if you make it to free agency, you will get yours. And then the owners are just like, nah, you're not gonna. And now, you know, we're seeing those guys start to get paid again, which is nice. You know, as much as I would love a fundamental upheaval of the system, it, you know, free agency, I think, is is doing about what it's supposed to, which hasn't been the case for at least five years. Yeah, you mentioned the long contracts, and I think that they are one of the trickier aspects of the trends of spending that we've seen and like the positive vibes around labor and baseball of the last couple months, really since minor league unionization. I feel like people are people generally and even us on this podcast generally feel like things are going better in the last few years because we're not stupid we're looking around and saying things are definitely actually better than they were the last couple of years um a lot of people have attributed that to a new cba you know owners feeling like they have a level of financial security with what they know to be the contract and so that they are not trying to hedge their bets a little bit to see what happens in a eventual lockout or an eventual strike or whatever might come from that so but for me, I, I can't totally get behind these long contracts being great for the game until I'm like five or six years into them and I see how that affects the future structure of deals. Does that make sense? Or am I like panicking over it a little bit too much? Like, yes, yes, it's good that these players are getting these huge sums and it's obviously their choice that they're taking longer security over short-term, higher average annual value. But I do think that the way that the baseball economic system is structured it leads to less trickle down for for guys that are going to be negotiating these contracts in the future while allowing the sort of absurdly large revenues of baseball continuing to grow. More of that pie is going to be going to the owners, if that makes sense. I don't think so. I I agree with you that we won't know the the total, you know, the totality of the the effect for maybe five years, maybe even longer than that for some of these 10, 11 year contracts. But I think that the pie is not constrained by those contracts. It's constrained by the existence of a luxury tax. And mm. as long as most owners are going to abide by that, if the start, if the absolute top end superstar players are still getting theirs, they're still getting their $300 million contracts. You know, if it's 300 million over, seven for a 30 year old or a 31 year old, somebody like Xander Bogarts versus, or I guess Bogarts didn't, li- I'm routing Bogarts didn't literally sign for 300 million, but uh, for seven years versus 11, I don't think that's depressing his total career earnings all that much. And mm-hmm. if it's, 
if you're looking at a tax number and those tax numbers are fixed and, you know, I don't think that's good. I just think that is. And that's just something we're going to have to deal with for the foreseeable future that he's taking up a smaller percentage of that total tax number. And a lot of teams are still using that as a threshold or, you know, try or even if they're going over, they're trying to stay tethered to it to at least a certain point, except for the Mets. And so if Bogarts is taking up, I don't know, 27 million of that, as opposed to 35 or 37, then that is getting redistributed to middle relievers, you know, or to, you know, to Gene Segura or Craig Kimbrell or, um, or Drew Smiley, you know, guys who are getting like real money, you know, Drew Smiley signed for, was it two and 19, uh, guaranteed with an opt out, you know, that's, that's big for somebody who's really a fifth starter, even in even with the amount of money that's being tossed around uh, now. And so teams are going out and committing money to they're committing money deeper on the roster. And I think that's a, you know, it's an undeniable good. Cause the, like I said, the guys that I'm worried about is not Bryce Harper or Xander Bogarts or, or Aaron judges, you know, $400 million that they make over their career. It's, you know, whether, you know, it's, it's guys like, like Rich Hill or, or Drew Smiley or Jordan Lyles, you know, or Kyle Gibson, you know, guys who are making a career out of this, like they should get rich based on, you know, and like sustainably rich based on the, the amount of money that's getting poured into this sport, because if it's not going to them, it's certainly not coming back to us. I thought the way that you put it earlier, um, when talking about the state of things right now, it was interesting how how it's not like this moment is an aberration where owners are deciding to spend. This was actually the norm for much of the history of baseball was that you expected the teams to go out and spend money on the good available players. Um, and it's really that the the last decade or so, even less than that, has been the the kind of aberration, so to speak. So what do you what do you think the sort of impetus was for that? change for teams to to come back to the table and say actually we do think it's prudent to sign the good players out there like is it just does it take one owner coming in and saying i'm gonna buy up all the good players that i need to in order to win is it them making a collective calculation that actually cutting cutting our losses is not is not getting us very far they don't make collective calculations that's been (laughs) you know that's been in the news right oh yes no that's been debunked debunked many times (laughs) um so i i think a lot of it has to do with the cooling of tensions after the lockout that the detente that we have it's not just that we've got a durable system that's going to be in place for the next few years i think just the the amount of bad blood that went through the capital strike years and then the pandemic and the the negotiations around that. And then even though the lockout didn't really have a big tangible effect, I think on the structure of baseball, it's just going through it took so much of the animus out. And there, I mean, it also helps that there are, you know, there are owners that no matter what, you know, Tampa Bay is never going to spend no matter what Cleveland's never going to spend no matter what Pittsburgh's never going to spend no matter what. And some of those teams find ways to be competitive in spite of that for sure. But it requires owners who actually want to win. And if that's the Mets for a change, you know, the Wilpons never ran rock bottom payrolls, but they certainly weren't doing what Steve Cohen's doing. Uh, You know, the Rangers are spending when they 
historically have vacillated between spending and not the same, you know, the Padres are spending in a way that I don't think they, they ever really have, you know, the Phillies are acting like a big market team. You know, you need the Blue Jays, you know, the list goes on and on. And for whatever reason, I don't know what the, whether this is the result of collective discussions or just a bunch of individual teams have decided to invest all at the same time. Like that's what, that's what we need. It's, that's what this system needs to work is just competition. That's what it's supposed to be. And I'm not going to stand up here and cape for a system that uh, that privileges owners and, and depresses wages with a draft and a salary cap and arbitration, but there is a logic to it under capitalism, the way it's supposed to work. And I think the difference between where we were five years ago and now is it's working the way it was designed to work. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I guess I hate to be like the cynic that's sort of pouring cold water on the whole like discussion in the state of labor being good compared to the last three years of us doing this. I guess I'm just a little bit cynically, skeptically looking at this as, okay, what has really happened in the last year? We had a lockout and we had owners basically double down on the system that we all agreed one year ago is totally broken. And now this is just like, we sprayed some Febreze on this totally rotten system for a few years. and But then six years from now, aren't we just going to look back with the same negativity that we've been looking on it for the last six years? Like, I, I, I struggle to see what from the last year, other than minor league unionization, which we should probably pivot to shortly as, as one of the shining beacons of last year, I struggle to see what has fundamentally become healthier in the long term. Like I, I, what I look at is I see owners who have recognized that they push it a little too far and that especially with regards to the pandemic, they really lost a lot of the court of public opinion in comparison to when they've previously acted out in, throughout baseball history. And I don't know, like, uh, am I happy for all of these guys getting paid? Yes. Do I think that all of these guys getting paid necessarily means that the sport is in a healthier place? you know, 10, 20 years from now? Probably not. I think it's 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 just a continued renewal of the same system that we all agree is going to suppress younger players' um, salaries and then give the option to owners with what they do with older players in free agency in the future. And I don't think that they, just because they're doing it now, means that they will do it in the future. I agree 100%. And what you're making it, like, the difference between the way I'm articulating this versus you, I don't think that's a, a disagreement over the facts. I think, you know, I'm acknowledging that that we've sprayed Febreze on the rotten fruit and the Febreze rotten fruit smells way better than the <laughs> than the non-Febreze rotten fruit. So, you know, right. There's I'm, a reason I'm Febreze sell- sells. Uh but and and absolutely a hundred percent like this system working, you know, and I'm making, you know, asshole quotes with my fingers here, is dependent on the commitment of a small cabal of billionaires to do something other than just line their pockets, which I admit is probably not the most durable, sustainable system that you could have. So what's stopping this from backsliding as the next CBA negotiation approaches? I think the only real structural change is we'll see what happens with the minor league CBA negotiation like that's the yeah. that is the only major structural difference I think that you know there are stru- small structural changes that um uh you know the the pre-arb bonus pool for instance like that's putting uh, a significant amount of money in the in the pockets of players who really deserve it you know there are small things we're celebrating but I think the difference between you and I I think 
don't disagree on the facts or the the norms. I think just I'm taking an incrementalist view and you're taking an accelerationist view. Uh, and <laughs> wow, you know, I'm that's, celebrating that's reform a flip from what it usually is between us. Is it? You know, I feel like I've I've maybe things were just so bad the past couple of years that that I would just like screw it, burn it all down. But no, I was talking about the wider world, not baseball. It's uh, like you're, you you're usually the, a, you think I'm more of an accelerationist than you. <laughs> I don't know. We'd have to really sit down and talk about all the issues. I feel like, yeah, I, I, I don't know. That is it. That's a conversation we should have off air. But that surprises <laughs> me because I because like I do feel like an incrementalist a lot of the time. In, in right, you can tell spaces. this one. This one really, really got to you, Mike. This it's quite an accusation being thrown. I don't think it's an accusation. Like I think like the cool thing to be is an accelerationist. I think it's deeply un- uncool to be incrementalist. But I'm yeah. acknowledging that I usually am the the uncool thing when there are real world stakes involved. But I guess like <laughs> I don't. You don't want to like go break out the bargaining team minutes from <laughs> no, I'd rather not um, from February, 2021, but yeah, they're, <laughs> like, they're buried in a Google doc for a reason. Yeah. But uh, okay. So speaking of bargaining, we have to, we have to talk about it and mm-hmm. it's alert. a few times already. Yeah, Segway that's right. Alert. Yeah. <laughs> um, the minor leagues, they unionized or at least they said they were going to, they were going to unionize. They've been recognized. They got recognized. Is, like they it's got done. recognized. Like, so yeah. it's like, so it's there. The work now is obviously creating that bargaining agreement, which is a, a massive uphill lift, as I'm sure both of you guys know. Creating your first bargaining agreement is, uh, is certainly not something to be uh, taken lightly, and it's something that takes time. So I'm curious, you know, that was, that was back in September. We're now, uh, you know, four months out from that or, or so. We haven't really heard a lot in terms of movement since then, um, as I'm sure they kind of both sides kind of get ready to to get their ducks in a row. But I'm wondering what you think this process sort of looks like and what is the, I guess, 50th percentile outcome for minor leaguers, like the the reasonable sort of things for them to achieve or or what the sort of pie in the sky, um, uh, I guess, CBA looks like for them. Oh, I don't even want to go pie in the sky. Um, <laughs> so I'll say like, this is the, f- getting the first. So if you're a white collar worker, which like basically baseball players are, I would classify them, you know, they're not mining coal or anything. Uh, <laughs> the hardest thing your union is going to do, particularly if your bosses are used to having everything is getting a first collective bargaining agreement, just getting them to, Getting the bosses to back down from we have everything to we have most of it is just such a huge lift, and it takes so much commitment and uh, and resolve. And it's you know having been through it myself, like it's it's one of the hardest things that uh, that I've ever had to do. It's and honestly so more of a conceptual hurdle than an actual yeah, like because when because once you have that viable hurdle, because once you have that first bargaining CBA in place, you're bargaining over money. And money is numbers, and if there are numbers, then you can average them, and there's a compromise somewhere in the middle. If you're bargaining over values, if you're bargaining over like a a philosophical disagreement over we deserve part of this, I mean, we really deserve all of this, but like for the acknowledging the the uh, the world that we live in, you know, we deserve part of the labor that, you know, labor is entitled to some of what it creates. Like it's basically <laughs> what you're going into the, to the, the table with. Quote. Yeah. And like getting that through the heads of P- 
people who are used to passive income is very, very difficult. And so like that, I don't know, you know, I really don't know how this is going to end up just because the, the range of outcomes is so great. And I think the minor leaguers really have the bully pulpit in the way that no other sports union, I guess like the, uh, the PHWPA, the the women's hockey union, is the only one that that has really had the like public consensus on their side the the way the the minor leaguers would, and that's a you know it's a much smaller megaphone that that those women were uh, were operating with. Even though like I think it's I don't know, I don't want to go go back into that. It's the the best executed sports labor action of my lifetime. What the 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 um, what is now the PHWPA did a few years ago before the, the world championships. But anyway, like they're pub, the public is like, these guys need to get paid and you know, they need to have better working conditions. So like, what's a realistic outcome that they should be shooting for. I think it's what minor league hockey players get who are unionized, which is every one of them makes a living wage. It, it's not, you're not going to get rich, but like if you're a full-time minor league hockey player in the AHL or ECHL, you're making at least, I think it's about $50,000 a year and you're getting health insurance. And if you get traded or reassigned during the season, the team will help with moving costs and, and relocation. And like, that's, I think that's what everybody deserves. You know, <laughs> yeah, right. I was going to say, that seems, uh, dare I say normal? Well, it's <laughs> at so least much more world? than what they have now. You know, know. living in closets, you know, making $8,000 a year that, that they're, um, that they're used to living with. You know, you just think about, I think there's a, a romantic, uh, you know, paying your dues type of type of conception of the minor league baseball player. It's, it's like, you know, a 21 year old who's just out of college and is chasing his dream. And, you know, we all like you were in a band and you, you know, you did a tour across the East coast or something. You all piled into the van and, you know, slept, you know, couch surfed and stuff. And, or, you know, drop the band camp link, Mike. <laughs> yeah. What did Jerry, or what did Jerry DePoto do.com? Um, <laughs> so I do have a band camp. That's the only song on it. Uh, so it, you know, but everybody has this romantic, like almost famous type of uh, conception yeah. of like, you know, these are just young guys chasing their dream with nothing to lose. And so many of them have wives and kids so many of them have like families to support or you know imagine like you know you're out of college or you're out of high school and you're in your first job and you're trying to like put down roots maybe start a family you know maybe save money to buy a house and you're making a couple hundred dollars a week and you know living at a best case scenario in a hotel and you have to pick up and move every four months like that's no way to live and you know they're there are necessary sacrifices that I think you need to make. Like, this is not a normal job. This is not like working at TD bank. You know, that's there. This is different from no free ads. Yeah. Certainly not for banks. That's my bad. I should know better. <laughs> um, you know, you're not, you're not, you know, working a normal white collar job. This is different yeah. there. You know, it's going to be harder in a lot of respects, but it's just the nature of, of the way things have to work. And I, you know, everybody, you know, all the players will acknowledge that, you know, but it, shouldn't be this hard it should be attainable like you should be able to live comfortably if you're a professional baseball player in the united states you know i would argue in the dominican republic or venezuela but that's like the next frontier for uh for labor but uh you know you should be able to live 
like a comfortable middle-class existence. If you're doing this, there's that, you know, there's enough money to make this happen within the sport without anybody breaking a sweat. And, and, and it's, and it's the way it is in hockey. It's the way it is in basketball now too, uh, with the, the G league. And there's no reason it can't be, this can't be the case in baseball. And I think that's a fair question to ask. Uh, you know, it's a question that the union should be raising in public as they do these negotiations. Like, Mm -hmm. If this is possible in hockey, why isn't this possible in baseball? If this is possible in basketball, why isn't this possible in baseball? You know, why are our guys unpaid se- or like seasonal apprentices or whatever the the verbiage was? You know, you should be able to, even if you're not getting rich, you know, you should be able to not worry about where you're going to live or what you're going to eat. Yeah, it's just such a basic tenet of human dignity generally that I don't think that baseball players are it's going to be a very easy argument to win in a way that like Max Scherzer and his $40 million contract being the, you know, the front man for, uh, for the major league players when they were negotiating their last CBA, you know, that's a, it's a hard circle to square for a lot of people. And it just isn't the case. And I think like one of the biggest battles that that minor leaguers have won, even before they unionized is that you go to like the average person, you know, the average, even baseball fan, you say, you know, you talk about guys in AAA. They're like, oh, they're getting paid millions to to play a kids game. Like, no, they're not. They're not getting. You know, a lot of them aren't even getting paid tens of thousands to get to play a kids game. And just now that that's common knowledge, that's such a big hurdle to minor leaguers getting the the livelihood that they deserve taken out of the way. So I, you know, I think that's a realistic thing to aim for. I think that's something they they can and should get. Yeah. So to me there are sort of three buckets of interest in, in bargaining, but in the whole process, the the first one is you've already kind of alluded to it. It's making a living wage in the present, making it possible to be a minor leaguer day in day out year in year out to try to have a career in major league baseball. That isn't the case now, but that is something that bargaining definitely will address. And I have no, I, I, I have no worries that that is something that will be, vastly improved by bargaining the second thing is what happens to minor leaguers after they wash out i think that needs to be part of the first cba too there needs to be some sort of team sponsored or program programmatic approach to what happens when these guys have to transition out of the extremely weird world of baseball that the owners have created by design to line their pockets with these minor leaguers who you know provide a tremendous value in total but maybe not as much value individually as major league baseball players um so i I don't know what that looks like whether that's like a career program whether that's a going back to school and getting an entirely paid for program no matter what your contract says no matter what your previously agreed to terms with your minor with your major league team say and then the third part of it is more conceptual for me like the third part of it for me is how much do the minor leaguers really want to test the waters of what their value actually is to major league baseball and what kinds of things can they say, hey, we deserve this? How do, what, do we deserve you know, revenue sharing in terms of what the teams are making? Do we, do we deserve a certain percentage of what the pie of Major League Baseball is? Or do we just deserve these flat numbers? And how are we going to approach that negotiation? Because this is their one chance to get all of that stuff, like you said. The, the first CBA, the philosophical differences that you approach and introduce and bargain over and are able to win are going to determine the, terms the ground rules for, for forever for, for yes. literally forever. The first CBA Marvin Miller is the reason that we have the different structures that are pro players association. Now, like this is just the way 
things work. Now, are there ways to make radical changes in different labor sectors in the United States? Yes, there are ways, but this is not a particularly friendly environment to that type of union activity. And, and even if you do that, you still have to overcome the set the status quo that you negotiated the first time. Exactly, because then they're what lawyers are always going to say is this is the way things have always been done. Yes. <laughs> and that is an incredibly pro-management, pro-capital way of thinking, but that is just the world that we live in right now and particularly the country that we live in right now, especially when it when it comes to athletes that after they are making a living wage, like the public really isn't going to care all too much about the the in, the the specifics, the minutia of the structures. Like nobody besides us really cares about the the mm -hmm. revenue sharing and uh, luxury tax numbers really nobody would a select few amount of people really care about those specific details and so that third bucket is kind of the one that i'm most interested in seeing how it plays out i'm also kind of curious like how much we're even going to know about that stuff because i don't think now that now that everybody has sort of patted themselves on the back that we've all supported minor leaguers enough and they have a union like i'm really curious to see what the rest of media that finally came around to this problem really cares enough about to cover over the next couple of years as they do negotiate yeah. And I think that's a fair, I don't know, reminder that, like, I need to report on this more than I've been doing, <laughs> to, you know, frankly. But, um, but so bucket two, I think the transition out, that is also, I think, attainable because, Me too. you know, what you mentioned, like, if, you know, if a team signs, um, even a college junior or a, a high schooler out of a, a college commitment, like, it's I don't think it's universal, but I think it's very common that they say, if you don't have your degree and you sign with us now, we'll help you go get it once you're done playing, if that's something you want to do. Um, and, I, you know, I think like throwing in for job training or, you know, internships or something like baseball teams have so many business connections and exactly, yeah. and like, you know, ex-athletes are you know, they have a leg up on those of us who couldn't run very fast in the, in the job market. Like you don't know how fast Alex is. He could, he could be a four, six guy right in front of your very that's own true. eyes. That's true. I, okay. I'm not very fast. <laughs> and it, it hobbled me in the job market. Um, you know, it, it would cost the, it would, it would cost the owners almost nothing to like set up some sort of internship pipeline or something, you know, or, and uh, and it would be such a huge PR win. I think that that would be an easy get. That would be an e like something that, that both both sides could come away with, like seeing as a win. And as far as bucket three testing the limits, I think that curiosity of yours is going to go completely unsatiated uh, <laughs> because like these guys have a lot to lose, mm -hmm. and you know they don't have millions of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars of reserves. Uh, to sit on if they go on strike and like they try to wait out a year and you know these guys are are hungry but, like what but they want to do do is, they not now though that they're part of the players association like is there not a certain amount of money from the strike fund true. of the, the MLBPA MLBPA is, now that they have a new cba that they could allot to minor leaguers to at least maintain the, the terrible status quo that they already right. have that's true and so but that's going to be limited but you know the players aren't you know the big leaguers aren't going to set aside like enough to keep the entire minor league ecosystem, uh, you know, guess, fed and like, for two years. Then they shouldn't like, have allowed them into the union then if they weren't actually going to stand up for them when the fight comes, you know? I've got bad news about veteran, you know, veteran athletes and what they do to the young guys <laughs> when push comes to shove. 
These are athletes who know that they have a limited window in which to capitalize on the very prestigious, lucrative dream that they've been sold their entire lives, that they've been working their entire lives for. They're not going to like, it's hard enough to get big leaguers to down tools for enough time to make ownership sweat. Like if you want it, like we will absolutely find out how, how much the minor leaguers are worth if they decide to go on strike for an extended period of time. Yeah. And uh, the answer and, is a, a larger number than the owners want people to know. And about. it's a, and it's a larger number than they're going to get. Cause I don't think that you're going to get these competitive guys who are all, you know, self-interested. They're all trying to make the majors themselves to stunt their own development by, by going on strike and, and, and getting rid of a big chunk of the season, you know, and there's a limit to, as much as you know, we could talk about a strike fund, or we could talk about, um, you know, an MLBPA sponsored camp to keep these guys in shape, and you know, hiring coaches and getting them, um, you know, continuing their development. If if a work stoppage does come, and I hope I'm wrong on this, but it's that's a big lift for guys yeah. at that point in their careers, and so I'm I'm skeptical that we're going to get this kind of burn it all down moment that you're hoping for even though i think you're right i think if they did that they could end up much you know much much better off than even you know pro labor lefties like like us think that they can think that they can do i just don't i don't know I, like i said i'd love to be wrong but i just don't see that as a realistic uh outcome if we do see a work stoppage it'll probably be pretty limited and this is what we saw in the you know it's going to be something i think about with regards to the this lockout at the major league level, like for the rest of my career is like the executive committee voted unanimously not to accept the CBA yep. and the, and the, and the rank and file wanted to play. And, you know, I don't know how much difference that would have made because by that point they had negotiated themselves into maintaining the status quo, which is not to say, you know, I think they got a bad deal. I think they got the best deal they could at the, um, at the time. And they, you know, won a lot of meaningful, uh, they won a lot of meaningful stuff and got the game going back on the track that, you know, it was designed to operate on. But it seems like, you know, union leadership did not think this was a deal worth accepting. And the players and the 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 rank and file just wanted to get back and play. And I just don't know how you're going to ever get around that in the context of a, of a sports labor union. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, definitely with much less guarantee you're risking far more. And you talk about the mindset that has kind of created this environment, right? That, you know, the minor leagues are a grind and you got to pay your dues. Like as much as the conversation kind of has shifted on a grand scheme of things, those clubhouses are still very insular, right? And this mm -hmm. is still something that's like instilled in them from a very young age, right? Is pay your dues, go out there and, and grind and, you know, work out 25 hours a day and all that. You hear that from from major league players all the time, right? And so as much as they might be talking about the value of their labor, as it were, and it's probably not even in terms like that, I think you're right that there's there's probably still a pretty strong mindset of like, at the end of the day, I'm here to play baseball. And I just want to kind yeah. of do that in a way that ruffles feathers like as little as possible. And what you mentioned about the insularity of a clubhouse, you can use to your advantage in a sports labor context. Like it makes it mm -hmm. very easy to organize, yeah. but, it, and that's, I think that's a big part of the reason why we went from zero to recognition in the span of, in, I don't even remember, like it was just like a few it days. Really like, like, yeah. Yeah. Like a week yeah, <laughs> from, 
from when news of this broke publicly to the league recognizing the union. And like that has to do, that's one advantage of the insular clubhouse. Whereas at the major league level, you are working together as a team within your clubhouse and you're trying to compete on the field and look out for each other on the field. And that kind of, you know, that team atmosphere, it translates very well to a union shop context. Whereas in the minor leagues, you're doing this job because so in order to not have to do this job anymore, like you want out of this clubhouse, which means there's a lot more turnover, which makes it harder to build that that team solidarity. But also you're competing not just against your opponents, but really more than a really you're competing against your teammates for playing time at the next level. Uh, more than you're even competing against your opponents to win on a night-to-night basis. And so I don't know, like, I don't know that any minor leaguer would articulate things that way, but it, I think it, it has to change the calculus on a subconscious level. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, if only because people are in places for shorter amounts of time and it takes mm-hmm. time. It takes a lot of time to bring people around to radical ideas, honestly. And even when they're not that radical, it takes a lot of time to bring people around to the idea of deciding to form this union. That's why we were so gobsmacked when all of this was happening so fast. Now, of course, stuff was happening behind closed doors for much longer than we knew about. And they did such a great job of organizing it. Even though it was happening out in the open, I think that we could only kind of read between the lines of this stuff leading towards unionization with something like advocates for minor leaguers and the collective actions that they were sort of taking um, to raise awareness over these sorts of things and buck back against things like housing problems or housing insecurity for minor leaguers. So I don't know. I mean, I am with you in that I'm not, you know, holding my breath for that bucket three that I alluded to, to really be satiated. But what is tipping pitches if not a place to try to move the the baseball labor Overton window further left? You know. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure we've talked. I don't remember exactly what we talked about uh, in years past, but I'm sure we've talked about like abolishing MLB and and <laughs> having the players come together under a workers collective. And oh yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, like we were talking about minor league unionization at all as something that was very unlikely a year ago. So why mm-hmm. why not just shoot our shot, basically? That's my take. Shifting our focus to the the majors again, I'm curious kind of what you make about the increasing gulf in team payrolls. We already kind of talked a little bit about the top end of the market and the teams that are willing to spend two, three, even $400 million. But we still have that class of teams that's kind of dragging down the bottom. And it's interesting because that was a really big talking point around the CBA negotiations, right? Is we want more parity in this league, or we at least want to teams to act like there's a little more parity uh, in this league. And the CBA didn't really address that uh, payroll disparity. And we're kind of where we have been for the last few years. So I, I guess I'm kind of curious how you think this off-season of spending changes any of that at all? And really, if if there's anything that can kind of be done to close that gap beyond a salary floor, which will necessitate a salary cap, cap. which the players aren't going to agree to. Yeah. So I'm coming, I like literally right before we were 
uh, we started recording, I was uh, on the TSN uh, racing podcast to talk about F1 and, and F1 is going through um, like they've instituted a, a spending cap, uh, which amounts to a salary cap. And, and for the same reasons to try to, they say it's to increase parity and reduce the gulf between the competitive gulf between rich teams and poor teams. Really, it's just about reducing costs and increasing profits and, you know, competitive parity will or will not happen and it mm-hmm. and who really cares um but what i mentioned in that conversation was that like what it's supposed to do is try to is to peg back like the big teams you know dodgers yankees mets usually the red Sox, you know the phillies the usually the cubs like you know the the richest teams you know it's bad for the sport if they can just spend so much that and they do spend so much that they can just run rings about around everybody else so it makes sense for the health of the sport to try to make it attainable at least make it so that upsets can happen and in if in order to do that you want to take something like the the luxury tax and you know take that overage and distribute it you know distribute some of the rich team's money to the poor teams so that maybe we don't have you know, so the pirates can go toe to toe financially with the Mets, but they can get close enough that they can compete if they're smart. Like, you know, Bill James articulated it this way. And I think that's a good way to look at like revenue sharing. Um, and what happens instead is that money doesn't get, even though it's like de jure black letter law that they're supposed to reinvest it in the team, what it gets allocated to is just owners pocketing it or debt service or you know a number of other off-field things that don't actually make i'm gonna dump on the pirates until they stop being so easy to dump on uh make the pirates more competitive on a year-to-year basis and you know that we're seeing this in the like this is like the reason that that I care about any of this stuff in sports is because you can see parallels in real life and like, look at the, the Southwest airlines scheduling fiasco. Like they, during the pandemic, like, so here's the consumer bet. Here we go. Here we go. Stock buybacks time of the pod. Let's fucking go. Yeah. This is exactly where I'm going. So under capitalism, the, the thing is, if you're not profitable, if you can't compete, if you're not a good enough business to stay afloat, then you shouldn't exist, which you know is a fine theoretical premise. But in the real world, what we find is that sometimes it makes sense for the government or whatever the overarching entity or society to float businesses in times of financial need because it's better for from a societal perspective. It will be so inconvenient for that business to go under completely that you need to float them. And so, you know, it makes sense to bail out the airlines during, uh, you know, during the pandemic when nobody's flying. And so what, you know, we sent billions of taxpayer dollars to Southwest said, you know, we'll keep everybody, you know, keep your, your inventory stable, you know, keep everybody on the payroll. So we don't have this massive, you know, void that needs to be filled. That'll cost more than, than this to, to fill once society gets back up and running again. And instead of actually taking care of their workers and their infrastructure, the executives pocketed that money and uh, gave themselves bonuses and did a bunch of stock buybacks. And now that society's back up and running, labor is getting crunched and the infrastructure is collapsing, not just in the airlines, but in the railroads and in healthcare and like name an industry. And this is what's happening in micro 
in baseball is that Major League Baseball, through revenue sharing, is the de facto government. They're saying, okay, you know, if the Pirates aren't rich enough to compete with the Mets, that doesn't mean they should go out of business or they should become irrelevant or they should become like the Washington Generals, just like an automatic schedule win for for the rich teams. It's good. It's good for the sport and it'll be good for the rich teams in, in the long term if they have credible competition to play against. So let's take a little bit of the rich rich team's money and let's give it to the poor team so they can compete. And instead of using that money to compete, certain poor teams are pocketing it. And this is an area where the union has a huge bug up, bug up its ass about, and they should. And a lot of the rich teams, you know, like the executives of the Yankees, Dodgers, Mets, the revenue sharing payers are like, there's like, this is not, we're not, we're not paying this money so that Bob Nutting can go remodel his bathrooms. We're paying this money so that the sport can be better. So we can get this money back in the long term because more people tune in to watch the games or buy tickets. And so this is like an odd coalition of ownership of like a section of ownership and labor that really wants this rectified. And I'm not really sure why the league hasn't done this, like hasn't really put the screws to the teams that are not allocating, um, you know, their revenue sharing money to actually improving the on-field product because like it's good for the sport. And, you know, this is a, a scenario in which like, I don't have a lot of sympathy for teams that run like $50 million payrolls. Like there is a, a financial disparity that puts them at a disadvantage and that's not why their payroll is a fifty million dollars, and that's not why that's not why they're losing one hundred five games a year and drawing eight thousand fans a, a game. And it, you know that's not why you can't. Every time you talk to a Pirates fan, well, every time you talk to a Pirates fan who's not like a complete asshole about the Steelers and Penguins, <laughs> they they sound like they're ready to jump off a bridge. And there are plenty of bridges to choose from in Pittsburgh. It's not a <laughs> that's it's the not whole a thing. It's all situation. three rivers, so many bridges, and so. Like the system is not working. It's the system is being taken advantage of by bad actors. And this is something that ownership, like the MLP MLBPA can continue to file grievances about this, but ownership needs to keep its own house in order. I have a theory about this. Okay. My theory is that you're right about the Mets, you're right about the Yankees, you're right about the Dodgers, the top spending teams who, you know, get upset that the top payers who are paying the most amount of money because they are making the most amount of revenue get upset about the A's, the Orioles, the Rays, the less of the Rays because they actually do try to compete in some ways, annoying as hell as they are. Um, you know, the, the Rays the are almost a unique situation. Yeah, exactly. Like, we should I, leave yeah. them out of this conversation. The the Reds recently in the last couple of years, just being a team that sells all their players and cashes revenue sharing checks. Now, I think that that is true. But I think that the middle 15 teams are happy that those teams are not spending any more money because that means that they don't have to outspend those teams by a lot. Like, I think the Seattle Mariners are fucking pumped that the that the A's are spending $54 million in payroll because then they get to say we're spending three times as much as the A's, which is still not enough money if you're the Seattle Mariners trying to capitalize on this window of young talent and stars that you could be bringing in to actually try to win a World Series as opposed to just being happy that you made the playoffs for the first time in 20 years last year. Like, 
I think that the Cubs are happy about those things. I think that the White Sox are happy about the, those things. The Giants. I don't think are Jerry Reinsdorf is happy about anything. Well, I don't think that, that, that's I don't think true. He's been happy since 1984. For the last few like, years, the Rangers have been happy about this. The Astros, who are a big fucking big market team that wins a lot, but they don't actually have to spend that much because they happen to be really smart about a few things and ahead of the curve on a few things. I think all those teams are making up enough of the ownership pool that they're not ever really going to fix this on their own. They're those. Those three guys at the top of the league who own these teams, the Steve Cohens of the world, the Steinbrenners of the world, who've been whining about this for decades, they don't have enough pull. Like they, they, they are not Jerry Jones. They are not these NFL owners who can bend the league to their will just from their cult of personality because that's the way the league has always run. Like there, there is enough like collective action from these owners, as funny as it is to say it like that. That I don't think any one, no, two, three, four owners like can really change the status quo when it comes to this. Because it's, it is about the whole cabal, not just a couple of the owners. And I think that that is why Steve Cohen is an interesting figure, because I think the other 29 owners kind of hate him. Yeah, and that's, I mean, it's hard to, uh, the, uh, it's not weird to talk about collective action, because nobody understands class solidarity like billionaires. <laughs> yeah. And... And I, I think there is like a philosophical objection on the owner's part to prevent anybody from making more profit. And it, when it comes down to it, like this is something that I think you're exactly right, that the owners, that there's a middle class of owners where like I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun uh, Bob Castellini and <laughs> um, and he's got a sack of vegetables Cast- over is, his is shoulder he, way in the back. Is he the current Castellini? I forget which, you know. Cast- Bob Castellini is the owner. The principal owner, but I don't think he's the control person anymore. No, he's, he's not old. the not the son. I forget his first. Phil name. is the son. The son is Phil, Phil Castellini. Yeah. yeah, whichever like beam guy is shooting off his mouth on talk radio. He's got carrots and lettuce and mushrooms, porcini. The vegetable king, Bob Castellini. That's Phil. Yeah. So I mean. It's it's convenient. I agree that, and you make a good point that like it's convenient for the middle class teams that want to spend one hundred thirty million dollars on payroll and win eighty six games. Uh, that Bean Guy is out here being a such a big disgrace that uh, that they don't get attention when they're not spending up to snuff. And you know, a lot of these guys like one thing. You know, I I joked before we were. I mean, on the, like regarding Steve Cohen, you don't have to hand it to him, but it is funny to like watch him play by the letter of the law and have 29 other owners just like, that's not how it's supposed to go. <laughs> this, guy, <laughs> this guy's ruining our good thing. Like it's I'll, I'll admit it's taking no small measure of satisfaction from that. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I, I feel like that only like gets you so far, right? That idea of like the middle class of teams, especially when baseball is not even incentivizing baseball, the the corporation, so to speak, is not really incentivizing winning at this point, right? You know, they've expanded playoffs and that sort of thing. And so at this point, if you're the if you're in that middle class, yeah, you only have to outrun Phil Castellini and you don't even have to improve that much, right? You can take a step step back yeah. and still be in a decent enough space, right? I I just I don't know like Maybe. like when do we re- get to a point where it's just not a sustainable ecosystem anymore for like that middle 15 uh never group to like just kind of float 
along. Yeah. Well, what it's not a middle 15. Yeah. If it's, you know, when, if it's not a middle 15, if if it's like a middle seven, I think, you know, you mentioned the expanded playoffs and I didn't think about this, but I wonder if that's a structural change that, that changes the incentive, you know, the incentives that like, we just watched, you know, the Phillies print money, like what, what that playoff run that they wouldn't have gotten last year has done for the trajectory of that franchise. You know, John Middleton, who, you know, I think it's generally what you want an owner to be is, you know, someone who writes the checks and gets out of the way. Yeah. Um, has given millions and millions of people lung cancer. Right. Yeah. Yep. I mean, <laughs> I hate to say this. <laughs> there are worse ways that you can accumulate billions of dollars. And we've seen <laughs> a lot of those guys own baseball teams. Um, I'll tell you what, lung cancer is not as bad as the 2015-16 Phillies. I'll say that right now. <laughs> um, uh, Put it on the poster. I've lost my train of thought now. But like those guys, like they'll just pay their you know couple million dollars in in tax penalties and and you know and they're making more money and it's just annoying. You know mm-hmm. they hate any kind of tax, but they live with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but so. Oh, but, you know, now there's value to to finishing first, you know, first in the league as opposed to third. You know, there's value to finishing seventh. Like 86 wins mean something now as opposed to 80. And like that's that's why you spend $10 million a year on not 10. It was like eight and a half on nine and a half on Drew Smiley. You know why you go out and and, you know, sign David Robertson, like why he's getting the kind of money that like he can make the difference between making the playoffs and not for more teams than he could have a couple of years ago. So I, you know, as much as I, you know, it's, it's funny every time they change the playoff system, I hate it, but it makes baseball more entertaining. Like it, (laughs) so maybe I'm just not the person to, to talk, you know, talk to when it comes to, to playoffs, but I do like, that might be the structural change that is, that has spurred a lot of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think my main issue is that I look at the bottom of the league as being more of an anchor than the top of the mm-hmm. league as being a, you know, a rocket booster or whatever that however that works in this metaphor. Like the the Mets are not dragging up the rest of the teams in the same way that the A's being at 54 allows the bottom 10 teams to be close to that. And, you know, the well, A's are taking a lot of heat. The, the A's are taking a lot of heat, but the Orioles, who are supposedly in fucking warp speed mode, are only $10 million above them. So let's get fucking serious here. Like, that's not a small market. That's a team that's been around for 100 years. Well, it's who has a small a market, fan but, ba- like, it's not. Yeah, a, but a legit like, fan base that sells out Camden Yards, one of the most beautiful parks in all of baseball history. Like, they talk about that all the time. Like, where, what, where, where's all that money going? That you be- to the to the Angelos family's lawsuits. Yeah, <laughs> I mean literally. So, so like, so how many teams? Like, let's be real. How, let, let's count. Like, how many teams is it that are like actually dragging dragging the bottom? It's the A's, the Pirates, the Reds, the Orioles. Even though they were good last year, I mean, if you want to count the the Rays and you know as uh, a special case, I don't know what the um, I don't know. Was, I don't think it's like a bottom ten. I think it's like a bottom five or six and everybody else is at least like made a head fake toward trying and even the Rockies who suck every year they don't suck every year because they're not trying they suck every year because they're run by weirdos yeah that's exactly right but and honestly like if there's one thing that I that that I dislike about the uh like the sabermetrics revolution is that like 
teams that suck because they're run by weirdos have become so rare it's refreshing to still have one. <laughs> but but what's it, your definition like, of not trying though? Like what is what the Brewers are doing trying? They're yeah. under one twenty. They're under one hundred and twenty million dollars. Like what? It's so hard to, for me to really trust what is the number where a mi- like a mid market team is trying because we don't have the truth about any of their books. Like we don't have the truth about any of this stuff, and so, so I, there's I no such thing as a small market team. Like the Padres are exposing all of these people, and you think so? You think that I'm more acceleration, more accelerationist <laughs> than you? And you're talking like that. Every team needs to be running 150 million dollar pair. Yeah, like it's 2022. Calm down, Trotsky. It's like, 20, I think that it's 2022. Too, that like there's not there's no reason that payrolls should not be rising commensurate with re- rising revenues for each of well, these teams. Well, it's time to make that not. argument was before the, the last CBA pegged the, the luxury tax to the low 230s. Uh, Newsflash, like, we were making tried. that argument. We tried. <laughs> yeah, and you lost. We lost. That ship has sailed. <laughs> God damn it. Talk about like literally not, you know, not trying to put a competitive team on the field. Like, if if I'm just looking at this from the perspective of a fan, I care less about how much they're spending. Like I would rather be a fan of the Rays than the Rockies right now, even though the Rockies are spending more money. Like if yeah. you're finding a way to what whatever ownership does, if you're finding a way to be competitive, to be relevant, to play meaningful baseball in the second half of the season, like and maybe not every year, but if you're in a rebuild, then that rebuild needs to be going somewhere as opposed to you know, what the pirates are doing, for instance, and sorry, yes. pirates, but, but like, that's the state of <laughs> fandom in baseball. That's not the state of labor but, in baseball. You know, like that, I guess what the rays true. are doing is maybe good for their fans. It's better than no, if they were, I mean, it's what better the than rays if are they doing were, is not good for their, no, fans, it's not, but, it's better than what the pirates are doing for their fans, but it's not good for labor. It's not good for the health of the game. I don't think. No, but I can live with, if it's all, I don't know if you're, if your argument is the anchor teams or anybody who's not, up against the luxury tax, then that's not what my fine. argument is. These teams are less than half of the luxury tax. These teams are spending less than half of the luxury tax. That's not Bre- y- you're dragging it down. If you're spending minor, less. The Brewers have been big players for free agents in the past five years. They came within what, like two games of making the playoffs last year. Like wait, they're wait, making win which, now moves. Which free agents were the Brewers big players for? They signed. I mean, this was during the the capital strike, but the, like. They signed Lorenzo Kane. They signed Yasmani Grandal. Like they were actually, they were acting like a, not a big market team, but a fairly big market team when nobody else was. I don't like when I look at teams that are, that are the problem, the Brewers are not the problem. The Brewers are actually fielding a competitive team. Yes. You know, they're signing Christian Yelich to, they're you know, keeping Christian Yelich around. They probably regret doing that at this point. Like they're not trading Corbin Burns the instant. He hits free, you know, hits uh, hits arbitration. Although if they like, would like to do that, I I will take him in Queens. That's fine. Yeah, Please. I'm sure you would. You can't have your cake and eat it too, because if the because if the Brewers, <laughs> I can, can Brewers I? are trying, then you can't just you know expropriate Corbin Burns. You can't just eminent domain him. Alex, right? are the Brewers a problem? Yes or no? I'm an A's fan. I have no ground <laughs> to stand on. We're calling any team a problem. You're not I, your team, Alex. God damn it. <laughs> Well, twenty. You don't have to abdicate your own moral judgment just to support whatever your team is doing. Oh God, I know. Yeah, but twenty six years of being a baseball fan has has told me otherwise. Uh, so I mean, so then is the answer just get 
better owner, like get more Steve Cohen's in here and continue cycling out that like no, the bottom answer is we tier. Because yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> like I can live with a big middle class, and if there's only if like, I mean, Jesus, if like fifteen, this is so bleak, but. If 15% of the league is just non-participants, it's better than it was a couple years ago. And if mm-hmm. and it's lower than the percentage of that are like actually in some form or other, you know, the Braves aren't going out and running a $300 million payroll, but they're allocating big financial resources and they're winning 100 games a year. And so like I I have a hard time critiquing that on anything other than pitchforky torchy grounds, you know? Like I so yeah, I think this is this is sustainable until this group of owners decides to back out of it. And that could yeah. happen at any moment. Yeah. And I acknowledge that. Yeah. I I completely agree. And that I think that that is a good segue into our final list topic here, which is sort of the dichotomy between the two NL East teams, the top two finishing NL East teams last year, the Mets and the Braves, where you know, you have Steve Cohen who's coming in. He's spending a lot in free agency. He's committing a hundred million dollars more to the payroll than the, the the next closest team. Like we have the sort of fear mongery old media types who are saying that you shouldn't be able to buy your way to a championship. And what the Braves are doing is quote unquote the right way. But from a from a state of labor and baseball perspective, I think that what Atlanta is doing is is kind of alarming. Like every individual move seems fair. Right. Like there's a reason that every single player agreed to the the contract to buy out their arbitration years and to get a discounted rate for their first couple of years of free agency if everything goes right. Like that level of security is good to have. But when I look at what Atlanta is doing, they're providing a blueprint for a lot of these teams in the middle that we're talking about to try to leverage the suppressed wages of pre arb and arbitration players into getting the first few years of free agency for cheaper than if they actually made it to free agency at a younger age. And so I, I wonder what you think about that in terms of a blueprint for teams to follow or whether or not Atlanta is more of an aberration league-wide. I just want to say I'd, I'd take the A's following that blueprint. Yeah. I mean, that's uh, yeah. the every, every, every day, right? Yeah, that's what... That's what every mid-market team tries to do. They're just not as good at developing talent as the Braves. And I'd say, here's the other thing. Like, the Braves are using structural factors in their favor to squeeze, to prevent labor from producing or from receiving the full, you know, the fullest value of its production. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's unusual. I don't think it's alarming. I think, like, it would have to be surprising in order to be alarming. That's just sort of how it works. And obviously, it shouldn't work that way. But you know, that's a longer conversation that that's not a, you know, state of labor and baseball conversation. That's a podcast that we probably shouldn't record or air. Um, (laughs) But a lot of these individual deals, like, you know, the Riley deal, the Olsen deal, you know, it doesn't have risk, but like if I were Austin Riley and I got offered 10 years and 212 million at that point in my career, I'd bite your hand off for that. Yeah. And you know, you can, those two are, I I think those two are maybe a little bit different because of how exceptional they were were as players but like the rest of the roster being like majority arbitration bought out players trading for guys who you know other teams are not going to extend like they are they have their fingers on the scale of every single leverage of every single imbalance in in the baseball system in a way that is like if it wasn't so fucked up i would almost be impressed you know yeah i don't 
really have a strong moral stand on this, you know, as as like a collective team building approach. I think they're, you know, using the structural lever levers that are in their favor to, you know, to reduce value, you know, the value that's given to to their individual players, like obviously that's not morally righteous, but nothing that any owner has done in the past. I don't know. The entire history of baseball is morally righteous. And so it, what I'll say is that you could, I could see the argument from like almost all these guys, except for the ones that that I would take exception to the contracts, the Murphy contract that just got signed, like the, uh, um, and the Acuna and, and all these ones. And I think like, where some of this gets a little icky is not from ownership's perspective because they're just laying out, you know, this is every extension conversation that gets had with every player on every team, regardless of revenue. But where I saw this brought up with the Murphy contract, and it's definitely true with the Albies contract, is that like there's a conflict when they're tar- they might be targeting players with uh who have um agents without a lot of clients where one payday where like the one Aussie always payday can, can really change the agency, even though it's not the best. I mean, that was just an absolute travesty. Um, but even like the Murphy deal, you know, that's still a lot of money for a catcher who's about to hit 30 and you know, that Michael Harris and Spencer Strider, they could end up being severely underpaid, but those are players with a, a like a huge amount of risk in their profile. So I can understand why they take that. Like every deal makes sense individually and it just adds up to i don't know if the braves are you know offering you know just enough you see one thing that we see with with a lot of these extension negotiations with like the really the anchor teams that we were talking about is it's just we tried and oh you know we offered yes this is not it's a formality yeah like oh you know we offered brian reynolds 30 million dollars over eight years and he didn't take it that greedy bastard but you know we're doing everything we can like the braves are actually offering significant money very early in the careers of some very high risk players. And I think that they're going to come out ahead on, on most of these deals, if not all of them. But like, if you're Michael Harris first year of career, 21 years old, you're like, we're guaranteeing you $72 million. Like it's hard to say no to that, that, you know, that far in the future. And, you know, I, I would have a hard time going to Michael Harris and saying, turn down that contract, knowing what I know about, him as a player like he could be he could end up leaving 400 million dollars on the table because of that or something but like this is something this is change your life money right now at the very beginning of your career when you're still hugely underpaid where there's still a risk of you suffering a catastrophic injury and walking away with nothing and strider too you know even more so because he's a pitcher and because he's you know had some injury concerns i you know i don't think that that's exploitive particularly or I don't think it's it's exploitive enough to be alarmed by it within the context of baseball. It's just sort of how the game works. And it's why, you know, the real problem is this is an outgrowth of not just arbitration, but the draft. You know, the mm-hmm. arbitration free agency need, needs to get moved up. That's what allows stuff like this to happen. I don't necessarily blame the Braves for operating within this system because the the reason that, you know, one of the reasons that this is going, you know, their entire team is locked up through 20 whatever is that they built a really good team that's worth locking up. You know, I think that's worth celebrating. They're also going to run about a $200 million payroll this year. You know, 236, or I think our roster resource has their luxury tax estimate at $239 million. So, you know, out of the things to get up in arms about, I don't think it's the right way, 
and certainly I don't think this is what the Braves ought to be spending based on what we know about Liberty Media's finances, but it's not, if this is the blueprint, if this is the thing that we're complaining about, I think the game's in an okay place, even from a labor labor perspective. It could be a lot worse. I have to imagine it's pretty attractive to players as well, knowing, hey, here's a front office who is interested in actually building a long-term good contender, yeah. right? And is interested in giving the players who are part of that team money to do it and stick around. Like if I'm Sean Murphy and I just get traded to the Braves, this oh, is man. this is this is where I want to want to be for the next seven years. Or whatever. And that guy's played for I mean he played for his right state teams. I don't know. We're gonna go back to Sean <laughs> Murphy's college career. Like he's played for good teams before, but like he's lived that mid-major life his entire life. Yeah. And like and the a thing about labor is particularly once you get into $73 million guaranteed territory is that there are other like quality of life factors apart from money. Like maybe it is worth Sean, you know, to Sean Murphy leaving $40 million on the table to know that he's going to play for a content, a team that's going to be a contender for the next five years, as opposed to, you know, just slogging it out with that miserable ass team, that miserable stadium, and then taking his chances on the free agent market, like maybe that peace of mind, maybe that qual, you know, that increase in, and we see, you know, we see pe- players do this explicitly all the time, you know, take less money uh, because they want to live in a certain place or they want to play with certain people or they want to be in a certain situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I think that sometimes as, as like quote unquote pro labor analysts, like we do miss that part of the puzzle by, by boiling it down to just dollars and ge- like in a general perspective yes that is what matters but on a case-by-case basis you know individual players are going to want different things and you know i do i think sean murphy signed a bad contract yeah but i you know i could see the argument from from his perspective like he's going to be on a winning team for the bulk of for the rest of his prime you know for the entire rest of the time he's going to be relevant as a baseball player the braves are, are probably going to be good and you know how much is that worth to a to a competitive athlete in dollars and cents? Like, I hear the Cobb County schools are very good. It's very no, nice this time suck. of year. <laughs> no, my wife's from Cobb County. She went to private school oh, because the Cobb County schools are dog shit. <laughs> Consumer rant. We got it. I, we got. I it. just assumed wealthy suburb, but all right. No, yeah, that's look, not they don't, the like they don't invest Come in on, Alex. Southern California down there. Southern California. Um, I guess no. That's why I said if you look at every individual case. Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not as exploitative as some other things that are going on in the sport, of course, but when I look at what the Braves are doing, I look at them in a, in a calculated but above board and fair way by the standards of of Major League Baseball looking around and saying we're going to leverage every single possible thing that we can do. And I look at other teams and they don't leverage it quite as much. You know, you know who's not squeezing players quite as much as the Braves, the Padres, <laughs> the Yankees, the mm-hmm. Mets. You know, like there are other teams who are not doing that, and that's fine. That's their prerogative. They're following the letter of the law, as far as we know. They're not blackmailing any of these players into taking these contracts, as far as we know. As much as we like to make jokes about that on Mets Twitter, but if I if there were eight teams that were as smart as the Braves and doing it this way, I think it would be an issue big enough that the PA should be like, wait, we need to make structural changes to the system because then you start to say there's a large enough sample that we are suppressing the entire salaries of the league by letting, you know, this percentage of players 
sign into agreements like this that are making it harder for other players to negotiate against those numbers that they're putting into the salary pools. And I think that is something that the the Players Association should make its rank and file members cognizant of. And, you know, you occasionally hear about somebody like Scherzer or JT Realmuto being like, I want to hit free agency or Mookie Betts. Uh, or Soto. Or yeah. Soto. You know, like, I want to hit free agency and I want to reset the market. I owe it to the other players to. Aaron Judge. Yeah. To try to, you know, try to reset the salary structure. Um, but what I think it's important to, when we talk about exploitation and structural levers, like these are all like the players that they're, that they're extending, particularly the, you know, maybe not Harrison Strider, but like guys like Murphy and Olson, you know, um, I almost called Austin Riley, Adam Duvall, uh, but like these are, adults <laughs> I wish he was as bad as Adam Duvall. The, I wish he had that much swing and miss still. You know, these are adults well into their career and everybody knows this is what the Braves are about. Everybody knows what's happening. And I think even with the structural factors working against these players, they're all going into this with, you know, they're all signing these contracts with their eyes open. And they clearly fucking love playing there. Like for whatever reason, they like being an Atlanta Brave. I can't understand it, but they like it. You know, if they're happy, then more power to them. And, you know, if this was actually, I think. Maybe this is doing something to the, you know, the overall salary structure of the game, but you know, these guys are getting paid, they're winning and you know, they're like I said, they're they know what they're signing up for. And that's why, you know, I have a hard time dealing with it, you know, feeling about this on the the same level as service time manipulation or the draft or or um sign this extension or we won't call you up the way the White Sox have been doing. That's, you know, that's far more alarming to me. Yeah. Than, I think this is a system of all, or this is a symptom of all of those things that you just laid out. Like, and and that's sure. why I flag it, and, and that's, that's why that's I want to talk about it, it instead exist, of labor and baseball. But, exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, this is the, this is the culmination of like several different factors coalescing together into a whirlpool. But you know, these are decisions made by individual actors, and I think you know it's something yeah. the PA ought to take up, and you know remind agents of and remind players of that like you know if you sign a a pre-arb deal just be aware these are the knock-on effects it can have and i think that and by the way like i think that what says to me that i that you and i don't understand the the thought process behind this from a player perspective is i was thinking about this with the the albies extension is guys who are established big leaders even if they're pre-arb they don't appreciate how much money they have coming to them even if they don't produce, even if they get hurt, just like rolling over the the minimum salary, rolling over, you know, a couple decent arbitration uh, seasons like you can. The absolute worst case scenario, if you get into the big leagues and establish yourself is not you walk away penniless. It's you walk away with a couple million dollars, you know, and I, I think that the individual players are really risk averse when it comes to signing these deals. But you know, it's easy for me to say because I'm not the person who's being offered here. Here's $73 million guaranteed. You know, your, your children are going to have live in servants for their entire lives. (laughs) Well, your podcast appearance fee for tipping pitches this year was only, was only $3 million. (laughs) I get get an honorarium now. Like you guys are really taken off. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Patreon, baby. Talk about you guys like exploiting labor. I'm not making jack shit out of this. Here I am, <laughs> risking my 80 minutes later, spending 
yeah, like it could be the weekend for me now. And here I am shooting the shit with you guys for, you know, I'm not being compensated at all. Hey man, you got to pay your dues. This is what you have to do to make yeah. it as a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is me I'm, getting my dues paid getting from all of the hours of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ringer MLB show edits that I had to do. You, That's you paid is. your dues on, on my show and now you're out for revenge. <laughs> Alex, is there anything else on our checklist that we need to check off before we, we finally set Mike free into his weekend? I, I really don't think so. We wrote down Tony Clark extension, but I, that's probably the, the least interesting extension that I think we could have He's very tall already. He does not need to be extended. <laughs> I'm going to make that joke every time. Um, so my consumer rant this year, if you have a ring doorbell, your neighbors should have the legal right to tear it off your house and set it on fire. <laughs> so this is the next in a long lineage of very fervent, impassioned rants that Michael has given on the states of labor and baseball. Uh, the first one was about streaming and how streaming is a scam and we should go back to cord cable. Cord cutting is a scam. Yeah, cord, cord cutting is a scam. We should go back to cable. Do you remember what last year's was? Electric cars are a scam. Oh, I, electric cars. Yeah, because they're just going to pump out uh, software updates that they charge you for and their planned obsolescence is coming to not cars. Not only that, but it's it's not actually like it's not actually that green to to dig a dig the raw materials for a car out of the living earth, ship it to Detroit, put it together, put a lithium battery in it that you're going to have to change every few years and then offload and, and then still do damage to, to infrastructure. And so you're still spending all this money that could be spent on buses, could be spent on trains on fixing potholes created by your 9,000 pound Cadillac, like lowercase E escalate <laughs> uh, because it runs on, it, it's a plug-in hybrid now and it still weighs more than a World War One main battle tank. <laughs> and so, more okay. than that, you're offloading the cost of this quote-unquote green revolution to consumers instead of actually turning it into what it yes. should be, which is a societal good. Right. And it can become a, a status symbol, something that rich liberals can use, a stick that they can beat poor people with because they can't afford, I was going to say, a Tesla, but that should have <laughs> sailed in the... Uh, <laughs> So I think I that Ford Lightning or whatever cord cutting is a scam. You were slightly ahead of the curve on that. I think some people were already starting to share that opinion. I think electric vehicles are bullshit. You were pretty ahead on that one, mm-hmm. and I think that you've been proven phenomenally right. I will continue I, to be vindicated until we all until like the Mets have to go do their semester at sea because City Field is underwater. <laughs> <laughs> I think that ring doorbells are are horrible for society is already an opinion widely shared. Yeah. I think that a lot of people have been, have been tuning that horn for a while, but I, uh, I I sympathize with your, with your take. I agree. Ring doorbells are, are total bullshit. I'm glad that my parents don't have one though. They do have an Amazon Alexa, which is like just as bad, but yeah. Well, it's not, it's not just as bad for society, but it is bad for surveillance purposes. Well, I've, this is like the argument you and I have been having the entire episode. Like, I almost have a different visceral reaction to be to being surveilled by the NSA than I do being surveilled by local police. <laughs> so you're, like, oh, being you're surveilled by the NSA is not going to be a big deal for most people. But right. Like, like and you were born into that. Mag- like that's paying status to put quo. a cop magnet on your house. And you see what like people like there was that thing earlier this week about like people like getting on the UPS guy for walking across the grass. How much more fucking suburban can you get? Like, just. <laughs> Go like go lie down and die in your front yard because it'll make your lawn be better. And that's like go 
become human fertilizer. It's all you fucking people care about. <laughs> grass is a scam too. Did you know this? Yeah, grass is definitely a scam. Yeah. Oh, one hundred percent. That's been that's been known. Alex, um, do you want to supplement Mike's consumer rants? Hashtag Mike's consumer rants presented by Mike's Art Lemonade. No free ads. I it's it's pretty hard. It's I mean it's like it's like that first um collective bargaining agreement, right? He's kind of set the bar extremely pretty high, high. Extremely high. Uh for for me to clear. I feel like mine are all very very sort of sort of milk toast. Uh I don't I use Firefox. Well, apparently I have, like apparently I don't know. So is my rant this year. So like <laughs> <laughs> coming in here doing free labor for you guys, you guys are complaining about. Like that's or not you Alex, you are without sin. <laughs> Roberto over here. You think I'm just going to let you get off like hunky-dory, everything is good, like not give you a hard time about anything? Come on, that's not the nature of our relationship. No, I, I, do app- I do appreciate that you came into the episode with the mindset that actually things are pretty good. And, and by the Bobby's, end, we got, we yeah, got there. Bobby's we got like, there. no, they're not. This <laughs> yes, is not exactly. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Michael Bauman. It's always a pleasure. It's great to see you. I hope you have a tremendous 2023. You're not invited back onto the podcast until 2024. Just kidding. Aww. You can come on whenever you would like. We're going to come on for the National League Division Series between the Mets and the Phillies. Please don't put that energy into the world, for the love of God. I'm a fragile man who can only take so much. Uh, <laughs> where can people find your work now that you have transferred jobs? Yeah, you can still uh, follow me on Twitter at Michael Bauman. Uh, you can read me now at Fangraphs.com, where we're doing all sorts of exciting baseball writing. Uh, while I was on the podcast, I got a message from my new editor, Meg Rowley, uh, the e- extremely sensitive and talented and hardworking Meg Rowley uh, sent me a message um, to the effect of, you can't say that about Eric Hosmer. We can't print that. <laughs> uh, so... Well, you know, I'll have an Eric Hosmer signing reaction. Uh, Raphael Devers is the last thing I wrote about. Now, um, we're going to have some uh, some college baseball features, hopefully, in the the weeks to come uh, before college baseball kicks off next month. So, uh, yeah, we're doing exciting work there. Fan I just want I just want to say this is a space where you can say whatever you want about Eric Har- no, Hosmer. No, she was no right. Hold, no so holds here's barred. here's the thing about Meg telling me we can't publish that is like she's almost always right. Like yeah, it's not a if there's yeah, one thing so I've good. learned about Meg, it's that she's right ninety eight percent of the time, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uncommonly right amount of time. Uh, thank you so much, Fangraphs. Always worth your subscription dollars. Best oh, best yeah, baseball website on the too. internet. I gotta remind people to do that. Come on, I'm doing your job for you. Uh, I know. It was great having you on. Thank you, honestly, for all this time. This was this was a great state of labor in baseball. I think people will be very satisfied with it. And I'll come up with a better consumer rant for next year. I'll put that on my calendar. <laughs> you have a whole year. A whole year. I, I got 12 months to think of something. Just cause, you know, it's just like I like doing this with you. So thanks for hanging on the pod. I do have thanks a con- for having me over. <laughs> I do have a um, consumer rant that I thought of in the time since we recorded with Mike. That was a few days ago now. Um, digital media is a fucking sham. <laughs> it's not just it's not just cord cutting. Like he was right about cord cutting. I, I'm sort of like advancing this take in the way that like a Pokemon you know, grows into a large, evolves into a a larger Pokemon. Like the fact that I don't actually own a physical copy of like any of the movies that I have or any of the video games that I have 
I know I'm not the first person to share this. Far from it, yeah. honestly. You know, I can think of like Bodega Boys episodes from 2017 where Jesus was like, you should own physical media. Yeah. It's all going to get taken away from you one day. But now I'm like, do, do I really own FIFA? Or have I just licensed the right to play FIFA with you? And if the EA Sports company or PlayStation company, Sony, decided that they didn't want me to play FIFA anymore because they didn't like me, they could just take it away. Mm-hmm. It's bad. I 100% agree. Thank I mean, you. I mean, I have to say, not the most cutting edge. Uh, I feel like, I feel like, generally speaking, right, we're having greater awareness of the fact that we don't um, actually own any parts of our our lives, yeah, anymore, yeah. Um, but we should talk about it more. Well, I think that we just need to apply it more places. Like, I we don't own. I don't own anything. <laughs> I literally don't own it. I, right now, I don't, like the, I don't own my degree. The books. I don't own my apartment. <laughs> like, I don't own my car. The yeah. bank owns my car. I'm licensing my car from the bank right now. You know, I own like these books that I'm pointing at right now right. in the studio. These microphones, mm-hmm. I own them. Yeah, you do. But you know what? The digital archives of Tipping Pitches... I don't own. They're just on the internet. Yeah, somewhere. Where, when are we going to re-record? Our I mean, masters? we own the copyright of them, but I don't physically have the episodes that we've put years and years of our lives into. It puts me on a spiral every time I try to think about this. What? So when you think about owning, burning them onto a CD, okay. yes, and putting right. putting them in my car after I finish paying it off, because then I will own the car too. You I can't mean, take it away from. I me. I mean, why do CDs at this point? Go all the way back. Do like some vinyl, you know? Oh. Print tipping pitches on vinyl. Yeah. Or like, See, or like you think, know those little like wax like music players from like the yeah. 1800s? Where the set, I'd like, rather do cassette tapes, honestly. Cassettes I be- think that that feels more in line with what podcasts are. Yeah. You know, like this ephemeral thing. But not CDs is more for like playlists, like music. Mm-hmm. You burn a CD for your friend, whatever. Like I, I have vivid memories of my bad handwriting on my Linkin Park copy of Meteora that I like ripped from my friends. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do vinyl though, because I don't think I would like what I would hear. <laughs> you think it, as like the mixing engineer, the clarity of this podcast, would be a little the clarity too good. Would be a little too much, yeah. <laughs> I maybe cut some corners here and there throughout the years that I wouldn't want to hear printed onto vinyl. Plus, like that'd have to be so many vinyls. That would be a lot of <laughs> a lot of two part episodes. Would really make me hate myself. <laughs> All right, we're onto the B-sides now. <laughs> oh, another Rob Manfred joke. I guess we're going to have to print another 7-inch. <laughs> That'd be good. We could release singles. Yeah. Right? Like, just one take. Right. <laughs> just the cold open in a single edition. <laughs> exactly. If you just want to hear the bits, <laughs> we got that for you. Or you just want to hear the voicemails. Uh, how about you? Have you thought of any consumer rants since since we wrapped with Mike? Well, the one that I've been thinking of, I guess, is is... Along those same lines as digital media, but it's that w- w- we have have passed the point of this creating ease of access mm. to this sort of content. Yeah, like the user interfaces of most, say, streaming apps, atrocious. Yeah, are you trying to find something on Hulu? Better not. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. What you could do is rewatch something that you've already watched on Hulu. That's (laughs) what they are good at recommending to you. That is true. Here, because you liked Fleischman is in trouble, maybe you want to watch Fleischman is in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I just like these are like really small things, but they bug me. But like, they're not though. Like, they're not because it dominates so much of our lives. Like when you're on again, say a a streaming platform with a green sort of logo on it, right? Yeah. Not necessarily naming any single one, but but say you're on a show and you've scrolled to the to the bottom of the the seasons. You're on there's you're on season four out of four. You don't you don't see any of the other seasons on there. So like I went to go watch a TV show the other day. I was like, they only have season four on here. <laughs> Why is that? It's because they've scrolled the rest of it outside of the screen. Yeah. I'm sorry. Like I know this this feels petty to me, but it's not petty. But we've just we were supposed to streamline things, right? Like the streaming was supposed to be the chosen one. Yeah. Bring balance to to media. <laughs> not destroy it. Um I find Netflix to be one of the opening Netflix when I don't have an intention of what I'm going to open and search for to be among the worst experiences of my days. Mm-hmm. When I open it up and I'm just like here's 88 documentaries that were made in five hours. Yeah. You know, I have no idea what the quality of any of these, Mm-mm. their recommendation algorithm is like, you're an 88% match for this. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I'm like, why? I don't, I don't I, know what they're basing that on my watch history. Sometimes I saw something the other day. I was a 60% match on Netflix for it. I had already watched it. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue I'm a hundred percent match for it. I already watched it. <laughs> Hey man, that's not how how uh, how probabilities work, right? You're a sixty percent match. You just happen to fall on that given day no, in that sixty percent. The nerds 60%. got streaming, dude. The nerds <laughs> got streaming in movies. They won, just they, like they, they did, did with baseball. They're taking it away from us. This is exactly what's going on right now. I can't believe where I'm doing this rant in the outro yep. of this mm-hmm, podcast. Mm-hmm. This is exactly what's going on with fucking Babylon. All these people crushing Jesus Damien Christ. Chazelle's movie because it's making no money at the box office, and they're like, all the critics being like, he tanked his whole career. No, oh no, no. He made a movie. It's a good movie. It doesn't matter how much money it made or lost because you are not the executive of the movie studio Paramount. <laughs> so let it go. You mean, are, so you're saying it's not our money? That is what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yep. Bringing my same like douchebag shit posting lefty energy to movie studio <laughs> discourse Jesus. to box office discourse that nobody I'm, needs or wants that wait but yeah I'm, real wait oh do you hear that that's the sound of people tuning out right now <laughs> tweeting at manola dargis being like it's not your money manola dargis it's not <laughs> just i just got i have cinema in the brain you know I made a yeah. letterbox yeah man yeah you're a big letterbox head now yeah i'm in and on letterbox you got i think what one review on there so far two now two yeah what was the second? Checked out Emily the Criminal Ooh. just before you came over here. Wow. Got me in the mood to do Putting a pod. in work. <laughs> what would the movie title of your life be called? If they made a movie about Alex. Alex the what? Alex the A's fan? <laughs> Alex the sucker? <laughs> uh, it'd probably be an adaptation of the children's book. Um, Alexander and the terrible no good very bad day <laughs> just on repeat that's exactly <laughs> it's like edge of tomorrow except it's you waking up at 11 being like fuck I right yes yeah, work yeah groundhog day but just like fucking <laughs> boring tasks giving my my body over to capitalism <laughs> yeah all right it's time to end the pot time to end the pot thank you everybody for listening 
Thank you again to Mike for coming on and doing another State of Labor and Baseball. I already can't wait to do next year's. Thank you also to all of the people who have been reaching out and sharing their baseball butterfly effects, whether that be in the form of a DM or the form of a tweet at us or a a prompt with a hat tip towards us or a voicemail, all that stuff. We have been reading them. We have been listening to them in voicemail. Maybe we'll do something with the voicemails or the emails the next round that we do this. We'll have like a supplementary like listener submitted part of the episode. Um, But those episodes got really, really good feedback and it was a fun kind of detour to take with with uh grant and janice so again thanks to them as well um and a final thank you of course is in order to five members of our alex rodriguez vip club tier for being you for being part of that club uh those five members this week are jake craig ben tristan and mike oh and one final thing alex uh if you're listening this late in the episode chances are you probably already know about batting around which is our sort of sister pod, our friends over at Batting Around who have been on this podcast multiple times to do dumbest things of the baseball year. We've been on their show multiple times. They're um, they're doing their 100th episode this week. 100th episode is a great opportunity to go and tune into their show. Uh, we're huge fans of theirs. So congrats to them and go check them out. Okay, that's everything at long last. Thanks to everybody for listening and we'll be back next week. So when I reached my prime, I left my home in the Maritimes, headed down the turnpike for New England, sweet New England. Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.